Well, if you have a Bible there in front of you, our sermon text is printed in the bulletin. If not, it's Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. And I'll ask, as is our custom, that you stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. And give ear to the reading of God's holy word this morning. Mark writes, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. We've been going through, we just started recently a series going through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, A little while back in in chapter 1, back in verses 14 to 15, we saw what Jesus, basically when he was embarking on his public ministry, on his earthly ministry in earnest after the arrest of John the Baptist. At that time, he went into Galilee officially for the first time. And it says there in verse uh, 14 that he was proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand Repent and believe the gospel, verses 14 and 15. So when he started his ministry, what did he do? He preached the gospel. And what did he do in preaching the gospel? He called on everyone everywhere to repent and to believe. That, I think, is Mark's summary of of the message of Jesus. The content might have changed here and there, depending on the circumstances and things. But that was the basic gist of his message of the gospel. In verses 16 to 20, which we looked at together last Last Lord's Day, we saw Jesus calling the first of his disciples. He called Simon and Andrew and James and John. All of them were simple fishermen. None of them were of the well, well-to-do or well-thought-of or noble of this world. He, he told them, what did he tell them? Verse 17, follow me. Follow me, and, and what did he say would happen? Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That's right. And what happened? How did they respond? pretty short passage really Uh, it just says there in verse 18 immediately they left their nets and followed him no no elaboration they dropped whatever they were doing and followed Christ and that was a glimpse at least a small glimpse into the power and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ that that kind of thing doesn't just happen nobody does that Uh, they do that when the Lord of glory calls them that's why they followed him and dropped everything. Here in verses 21 to 28 that we're looking at this morning, uh, Mark continues with the theme that he started in those previous verses, the theme of the power and the authority of King Jesus. The time was at hand, the kingdom of God uh, was at hand, the time had been fulfilled, and now we're seeing different glimpses of the authority of King Jesus. And that's, 
that theme, if you read through chapter 1 all the way to the end, that same theme goes all the way through the end of the chapter. It seems to be the, if there is a theme, an overall theme in chapter 1, that would seem to be, to be it. Right out of the gate here in chapter 1, Mark's, Mark wants us to come to grips with who Jesus really is. He doesn't want us to have a misunderstanding about who he is, that he's the Messiah, he's the Lord, he's the King, he's the one who has authority over everything. That's who it is that we have to deal with here in Mark's Gospel. We're going to focus on what Mark focuses on in our passage, and that's the teaching of Christ. Now you might remember that Mark, Mark doesn't spend a lot of time, in chapter 1 or elsewhere really, on the content of Jesus' teaching. That may sound strange to us, we're used to... You know, we, we hold his preaching and his teaching up in high regard, as Mark did, but Mark doesn't really give us a lot of lengthy sermons. He doesn't record them like Matthew does, like John does, and even Luke does. Uh, but here Mark's focus is on the teaching of Christ, and three things about that teaching we're going to see in our text this morning. The first is that that teaching was amazing or astonishing. The astonishing or amazing teaching of Christ. In other words, the effect that his teaching had on his hearers. How did they take it when he, when he taught in their synagogue? The second thing is his teaching was authoritative. What was it about his teaching that so shocked his hearers and so amazed them? It even amazed uh, the teaching, uh, the effect it had on a, on a demon-possessed man in their synagogue. Both things, both the teaching and the effect of that man it had on that man in the synagogue bore his authority, the authority of, of Christ. The third thing is that his teaching was acclaimed. In other words, the news of it spread far and wide in pretty short, pretty short order, we're going to see in verse 28. So the first thing we see in our text today is that Jesus' teaching was amazing or astonishing. And, you know, Mark, we, we throw that word around a lot. We, we throw words like amazing. Uh, it, it's, it's almost meaningless the way we use it. It's like the way we, people use the word miracle. Uh, we, we water the word down so much that it's almost meaningless. Miracle becomes something, anything that we're just, uh, we're happy about that we didn't expect, that's a miracle, you know. Well, astonishing or amazing, uh, Mark is going to show us that that's exactly what he meant. He's not misusing the word. He's not using it lightly. In verses 21 to 22, it says, they, Jesus and the first four disciples, they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, when Mark says astonished, he's using a word that has the idea of being stunned or, or being struck by something. It's a very uh, picturesque word. It's, it's as if the people in that synagogue were beside themselves because of what they heard. They weren't sitting there calmly saying, oh, oh, that's different. They were shocked. They couldn't believe what their ears were hearing. It's as if his teaching had some kind of a tangible force to it. It struck them as nothing they'd ever heard before had struck them. There was a force to it. Now, as usual, Mark, again, doesn't tell us much about the content. You and I, I know I would. I would have liked to have heard and read, well, what did he say? You know, What is it that he said that made them so shocked that made them so astonished. Well, Mark doesn't focus so much on the content of Jesus' teaching here as he does the effect 
of Jesus' teaching. And we should probably, we're probably intended to assume, if you've read the rest of chapter 1, but went before it, we're probably supposed to assume that the content of his message is somewhat what he's already shown us in the verses that preceded. That the content of his teaching, this authoritative, shocking, amazing teaching, uh, was much like what we saw earlier in verse 14 where it says he preached the gospel of God. Now there, Mark uses the present tense, which has an ongoing idea to it. In other words, Jesus didn't just come and preach once the gospel. This is what he did when he went around. He was preaching and kept preaching the gospel of God. It's an ongoing activity. He preached the gospel of God wherever he went, and wherever he went, he preached the gospel of God. So when he comes to the synagogue, we are to assume, I believe, that's what he's doing again. He's preaching The gospel, not only that, verse 15, Mark gives us something again of the summary of his message, of Jesus' message, and that is the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In some way, shape, or form, that was the summary of his message, even here, we think, in that synagogue, the indicative. Notice he starts with with news, the indicative. The long wait was over, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom is of God is at hand. In other words, the king is here. You can imagine why that would be shocking to people to have Jesus come into their synagogue and and tell them that kind of a of a message. What was the imperative? What were they t- supposed to do because of that news? Repent and believe the gospel. In some ways that is probably the, the gist of the message, whatever the content and form of that content may have been. That's probably more or less what Jesus preached here in this Synagogue, And whatever the case, whatever it is he actually said, the content of it, the people in the synagogue were astonished, even stunned. Think about this for a minute. What would it take for you, in a good way, not in a bad way, um, I've heard shocking sermons that weren't in a good way, what would it take for you, sitting in a church, this or any other church, and hearing a sermon, what would it take to shock you, or amaze, or astonish you? It's kind of hard to imagine. It's hard for me in a man to imagine. In again, in a good way. You, it's probably not that hard to find a church and hear a sermon that shocks you in a bad way, one that rejects the authority of God's word. But what kind of sermon would knock you for a loop? And you can relax. I, I do not try to do that, as you know. Uh, nothing, nothing humanly speaking anyway. Um, but there was something very different about the teaching and preaching of Jesus Christ. Something entirely, it was a whole different a whole different level. It wasn't the force of his personality. There's plenty of that in churches in our day that try to build a church on the force of personality. Uh, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't his charisma, although he may have been very charismatic as far as his personality was concerned. It wasn't his technique. It wasn't his style of delivery. Their, their comments, the comments of the crowd at that synagogue weren't, oh, this is a different way to preach. Oh, I've never heard someone, he's quite dramatic, or or whatever it might have been. They were astonished at the authority of his his teaching. In some ways, uh, it it might have been the content in some ways, right? Even though we don't know what it was. uh, The message of scripture, the biblical gospel, uh, is unlike any other message that a person can and ever will hear anywhere else in this life. If you've never heard the gospel and you hear it for the first time, if you're paying attention, you might be astonished or amazed. I grew up in a nominally Christian church for 18 years. 
Some of you know what kind of church that was. Some of you have grown up in churches just like that one. And I, I doubt very seriously if I ever heard the gospel preached clearly a single time in 18 years at that church. That should never be. That should never be the case. It's a sad thing for me to have to say, and I'm more sad to say that that's probably the case. I'm convinced that that's the case in most churches these days. Not all, thankfully, but in very, very many that, that go from week to week to week, crack open a Bible, but never hear the gospel preached. Never hear the gospel proclaimed clearly or, or, or powerfully. Um, you know, it's a picture, it's like a picture of a man being lost at sea. Think about it. Someone who's lost at sea and they're dying of thirst. What's the saying? Water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink. That's what life is like in that kind of a church. Bibles in every pew, maybe even cracked open during the sermon, and no gospel, no living water being proclaimed from one week to the next. It sounds like torture, and it was in some ways. But I remember the first biblical sermon I ever heard. I can't tell you the text. I can't tell you the date can't tell you the points of the sermon. I don't think the pastor would be too disappointed to hear that. Uh, but I was amazed in a sense too. I wasn't struck quite the way these people were, but I was amazed by it. It was down in Escondido, just down the hill at Emmanuel Faith Community Church. Richard Strauss was still the pastor back then before he went to be with the Lord. Well, I had been invited to that church multiple, multiple times by neighbors and friends, people I had gotten to know. And I resisted going and I finally went and I went late and I snuck into the balcony. You know, just kind of snuck in the back. Didn't want anybody to notice I was there. Um, now, again, I don't remember the content of the sermon. I don't remember the passage. I couldn't even tell you the verses that he was preaching uh, that, that day. But he was preaching the Bible. He was preaching the scripture. And, again, there was nothing, if you ever heard him preach, there was nothing remarkable about his style. He didn't have a powerful personality or any kind of thing like that. But as I sat there, I couldn't help but think to myself, what is he doing? This is different. I haven't heard anything like this before. And what he was doing was opening the scripture and expounding it. Here's what it means. Here's what it means to you. Here is how it should change the way you live. I heard, had heard nothing like it before in 18 years of going to church. Well, the clear, simple preaching of the word of God is amazing in its own right. It's not a matter of personality or technique. May God grant the churches in our land, and this church as well, that, that we would all get back to that and stop trying to amaze people with entertainment or with the power of personality or any other kinds of things that are powerless to save. The power of God is in the gospel, not in our own entertainments and inventions and those kinds of, of things. Well, that brings us to the second point. What was it about Jesus' teaching that was so astonishing to that crowd? There was something particular that, that Mark points out in our text, and it's that Jesus' teaching was authoritative. There was authority in his preaching, a, a kind of authority that they had never seen or heard before. Mark tells us in verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So they were used to one thing. Very often the scribes would be the ones that would stand up in the synagogue and read a text, maybe expound it, maybe draw some application and things from it. They were the ones that, were, that, that knew the scriptures. They were the, the religious professionals of the, of the day. But the thing that struck these people was his authority. There was an authoritative nature to his 
preaching something that's very different, again, from how the scribes tended to teach. Now, I don't imagine the scribes didn't act like they had authority. They were the scribes. They were the Pharisees. In fact, one of the reasons they resented Jesus was that he seemed like he was kind of edging in on their territory. If people wanted to know what the scripture said, who did they go to? They went to the scribes, right? But there was something authoritative about the preaching of Christ that was lacking in their teaching. Were they faithful to the teaching of the Old Testament that they taught? Maybe. Maybe in some ways they were. Maybe in some some ways they weren't. Uh, Mark doesn't really say. Instead, he focuses on the issue of authority. The scribes lacked it. Jesus embodied it. There was something strikingly different about him. And that this very well may be a hint of why the unbelieving scribes and Pharisees in the Gospels came to hate Jesus so much and wanted to put him to death. They wanted to put him to death, and they did so. He made them look bad by way of comparison. He exposed their hypocrisy in many, in many different ways. You know, it should, it should shock us, and sometimes it doesn't, when you read the Gospels and you read of the Pharisees and scribes plotting to kill Jesus. Think about a group of pastors getting together and plotting murder, literal murder, not just of anybody, but of the Messiah. Of the people that should have known better were so blind in their hypocrisy and sin that they hated the Savior and had him crucified. Well, Jesus preached and taught. What did he preach and teach like? He preached and taught like a prophet. Dan this morning read Isaiah chapter 3. Read through the prophets sometimes. You know, when you, when you have, make some time and read through, just pick one and read through it. Jesus preached like a prophet. Jesus preached like a prophet, not like a college professor. He wasn't giving a dry, boring lecture. He wasn't giving a book report. He wasn't trying to give something interesting to them. He was preaching the word of God to them. What does a prophet do? What did a prophet do in the Old Testament? What did John the Baptist do? The last prophet in a sense of the New Testament. They spoke forth a message from God. We often think a prophet foretold things, told, told the future. They did that. But they foretold. They spoke forth the words that God had given them to do. They often called people to repentance in the name of God, in the name of the Lord. Well, his message was not his opinion. His message as a prophet was not his advice. It was not his anecdotes. The message of a true prophet was always, thus saith the Lord. This isn't my word to you. If it's my word to you, you might as well not be here. The, the word of God has to be preached, not the words of, of the preacher. And a prophet's message was basically, again, thus saith the Lord, period, exclamation point. And in fact, Jesus, the Bible tells us, was a prophet. You might be surprised to, to hear that. He was a prophet, although he was much more than a prophet, wasn't he? The scripture is clear that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18.15. It's actually a very important text in your Old Testament that we sometimes don't think about as much as we should, but this is what it says. Moses writes there, Deuteronomy 18:15, "The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses. From among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen, or it is to him you must listen." In other words, I mean, think about who Moses was. Of all the prophets in the Old Testament, you could make a pretty good argument that Moses was the prophet. He was the prophet par excellence. He was the one. He's the one that God used 
to, to accomplish the main salvation event in the Old Testament, the Exodus. He's the one that gave them the law. God gave the law to the people of Israel through Moses and did it twice, right? He's the one that spoke for God. He's the one that went up on the mountain to meet with God and come back down and tell them what God had to say. And they still rebelled against him too. A little foreshadowing of what happened with, with Christ. Now, he's not saying, hey, God's going to raise up other prophets in that verse, is he? Now, God did do that, right? He's telling them there's a particular one. There's one that's going to come that's going to be like me, that's going to meet with God and speak to you the word of God, and you'd better listen to him. That's really what he's saying. There's this one prophet is on the way. You might not know him right away when you see him, but you better listen to him. He's really hinting that this prophet's bigger than him, greater than, than him. Well, the New Testament makes it pretty clear that Jesus and no one else was that particular prophet. He was that prophet. John 5:46. Jesus there tells the unbelieving Jews, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Now, he might have had other things in mind also in, in, in the first five books Genesis through Deuteronomy that Moses penned. Uh, but he certainly had Deuteronomy 18.15 in mind when he said that. And chances are very good they knew exactly what he meant when he said it. He was making a very specific claim about who he was. And in fact, the very next chapter, John chapter 6, in John's Gospel, Jesus performs a miracle that we call the feeding of the 5,000. It's in all four Gospels, which all of them aren't. It's a pretty important miracle. And what was the reaction of the crowd to that miracle in John chapter 6? John 6.14 says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They didn't say a prophet. They said, Wow, this is the one. Nobody, who else had done that? Who else had fed thousands and even more than that in the middle of nowhere, miraculously? Moses did it. God did it through Moses. And now Jesus did it. In other words, the people, even the common folk, they had an expectation from their Old Testaments that there was this one coming. In fact, the book of John, it's all through the book of John. John paints a picture of Jesus as the new Moses. If you read through the gospel again sometime. Well, why did they connect those dots? Again, the Lord had miraculously, through Moses, fed the people in the wilderness with manna from heaven and even water from a rock, as we read this morning. Jesus miraculously fed the people in the wilderness as well. Again, so the people were seeing him for what he was. Jesus was a prophet, but he was more than a prophet. If anything, he was the ultimate prophet. He was, in a sense, the last prophet. Of the prophets. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 says this Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. No prophet could ever have been said to do that. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And he, Jesus, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much 
superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's a, that paragraph, you could spend all day on that. Think about who he's saying Jesus is, who he's, what he's saying Jesus came to do, that God spoke in these last days, his final word, his last word was his son. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet. He sent Moses, Elijah, all these other prophets, Jeremiah. And then he sent this one last one who wasn't just a prophet, but was his son. And then what does it say he did? He, he, through him, he created everything. He sustains all things. That's you, me, every last thing there is in the universe, visible and invisible, is sustained by the word of Christ himself. And then what does he tell us Christ did? After talking about creating all things, sustaining all things, after making purification for sins. Who's the one that died for your sins if you're a Christian? The one who created the heavens and the earth and who even now sustains them all by his powerful word. The one through whom God spoke in the final way. He did more than that. He died for the sins of his people. Pretty amazing things to think about. You know, long ago God spoke to the fathers by the prophets, he says. The writer of Hebrews says, their words were his words. They said, thus saith the Lord, or things like that. But in these last days God spoke to us by his own son. Jesus preached with astonishing authority because he preached not just like a prophet, but he preached as the son of God himself. He is the only prophet in the history of the universe who never needed to say, thus saith the Lord. Every other prophet in human history, every true prophet, had to say something along the lines of, Thus saith the Lord. Jesus didn't need to say that. Whatever Jesus said was the Lord's word, directly from his mouth himself. He didn't need a spokesman this time in the prophets. He was his own spokesman. He was his own prophet here in the scriptures. Well, Mark's account doesn't stop there, does it? When it talks about the authority of Christ... If the crowd in that synagogue was amazed by the authority of Jesus' teaching, which they were, they hadn't seen anything yet, as our text tells us. In verse 23, Mark says, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Think about that. There was a man in their, in their presence who was demon-possessed in their synagogue. Who knows how long that man had been in that synagogue from, from Sabbath to Sabbath, hearing the word of God expounded, Probably not hearing the gospel expounded. Certainly not hearing the authority of Christ the way he did this time. Think about what that says about people can be in a church their entire life. It doesn't have to be a church like I was in that didn't preach the gospel. You can be in a gospel preaching church, a Bible believing church for years and years and never actually believe in Christ. This man was demon possessed. Think about that. Think about what that means. And what disturbed him finally? The authority of Christ in his preaching. Before, before Christ preached there, whatever, I'm happy and home sitting here in the synagogue. When Christ showed up and Christ began to preach, what did he do? He cried out in the middle of everything while Jesus was teaching. Not very Presbyterian of him. Not decently and in good order, right? He screams out in the middle of the service. Imagine what everybody must have thought. Imagine maybe the fear that might have been on the people's faces. And he said, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One 
of God. Think about that. The demon recognized Jesus for exactly who he was and who he is. The only person in the entire synagogue that did was demon-possessed. Everybody else, they might have been amazed, they might have been astonished. This guy knew exactly who was standing in front of him. This demon did. He knew him for who he was. The demon's reaction to Jesus was actually far more appropriate than that of the crowd in the synagogue. The crowd was amazed. They were shocked. They were astonished. The demon was terrified. People would do much better to be terrified of Christ than to simply be amused or even astonished by him. The demon was terrified. They had no clue who they were dealing with, but the demon knew exactly who Jesus was, and it terrified him. What would it take to terrify a demon? We think of you know, horror movies, and I'm not saying those are any kind of accurate depiction of anything. But you think of demons, you know, oh, that sounds kind of scary. You know? uh, I almost, uh, in some ways, I'm hesitant to read these kinds of texts to the kids sometimes. I don't know what they think of them. I'm reading them now, so he's hearing them now. But, uh, but what would it take to scare the devil? Well, Jesus fits that bill, because he's not just a prophet. The demon knew that he had the power, Jesus had the power to destroy him. To destroy him. The demon knew that Jesus was the Holy One of God. People in that synagogue didn't quite put those two things together yet. It brings to mind the words of James chapter 2, verses 18 to 19, which says, Someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Maybe, John, maybe James had this event in mind when he was writing that. Even demons believe and shudder. Demons, do demons know theology well? You bet they do. Uh, I, I, I don't know how to say this, but uh, I'm quite sure that, that the devil and his demons know theology much better than I do. They're sure, they are certain of what's going to happen. They know that their doom is sure. They know that Jesus one day will destroy them. The demon's faith was not saving faith by any stretch. That's part of the point that James makes there. But it was better than the faith of most people who heard Jesus that day. They were amazed, but at least the demon had the good sense to shudder, to be afraid, to know who he was dealing with that day. What did Jesus do? Did Jesus run away scared? Did Jesus say, well, I came to the wrong synagogue? Maybe I picked the wrong day? Somebody else want to come up here and take the mic? You know, no. No, it says Jesus rebuked him. Verse 25, Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. He rebuked the demon. He commanded the demon to be silent, to be muzzled, basically, put a sock in it, and and come out of the man. And that's exactly what the demon did. The one who had the power to destroy that demon had the authority to command him to do whatever he wanted him to do, to be silent and come out, and that's exactly what he did. Now think about this. This is at the same time a judgment on the demon himself. Think about the mercy it is to that man. Think about what that must have been like for that man who had been 
possessed. Now, the crowd didn't totally miss the point, did they? They didn't get the whole point, but they didn't totally miss it either. You know, they started asking themselves, what is this? Now, they were amazed before. And now it says they were amazed again. Now, if they thought Jesus had authority in his teaching before, now they really knew it. Now they really knew there was something really different about this guy standing before him. When they said his teaching was, quote, a new teaching with authority. That's authority that they had never seen or heard before. Now think about that for a moment. That's the same Jesus who laid down his life for his sheep. John 10, verse 11. That's the same Jesus, the one who terrified this demon, who says to you, even now, from Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to seek and save that which was lost, and he alone has the power and the authority to save. Well, the, the last thing we see in our passage is the acclaim, the acclaim or fame of Jesus' teaching and of Jesus himself. In verse 28, Mark kind of sums it up or closes it out. He says, And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Now, if you read ahead in the rest of Mark chapter 1, you're going to notice that's a theme. That's a theme that goes right along with his authority all through the rest of chapter 1. In other words, word got around pretty quick, pretty fast. Jesus and his teaching were unlike anything anyone had ever seen or heard, and pretty soon the crowd started pressing upon him. Pretty soon the crowds, Mark tells us in verse 32, were bringing to him, quote, all who were sick or oppressed by demons. When you can heal someone, and cast out a demon, pretty soon the word gets around, and they sort of bring to him all kinds of people. Soon after that, Jesus tried to get some time alone to pray. And Peter comes and tells him that everyone, verse 37, was looking for him. Yeah, word, is, word is out, and everybody wants a piece of him. The last verse of the chapter, verse 45, says that news of Jesus had spread to the point that, quote, Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but it was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. It's a pretty amazing thing to think about. He actually, in a sense, tries to withdraw. He can't go into town openly because everybody now knows who he is. And even being out in the middle of nowhere doesn't help. People are coming out to him no matter where he is. They're seeking him out. Now, that's the picture that Mark paints of the crowds of people following after Christ um, that doesn't mean that most of those people came to saving faith in him at that time, does it? In fact, many people didn't. Many people turned away from him later on. But I think what this verse is, is showing us is a picture of what Jesus came to do. It's This picture, however imperfect it may be, it's a picture of what Jesus came to do and is still doing even to this day. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to draw all men unto himself. John chapter 12, verses 31 to 32. There Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will do what? Will draw all people to myself. What, what does he mean by lifted up? The cross. When he's lifted up on the cross, what will he do? 
draw all people to himself. These crowds are a picture of what Christ is doing through his gospel even today. Jesus is the one who has the power and authority to cast out Satan, the ruler of this world. He is still the one who calls sinners and draws them unto himself that they might have forgiveness of their sins and eternal life in his name. Don't just be amazed by Jesus. Believe in him and follow him. Paul writes in Philippians 2, and we'll close with this, God has highly exalted him, exalted Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word your gospels, all through your word, that, that uh, your son is shown to be who he really is and not the preconceived notions that we may have of him, that he wasn't just a prophet, but he is the Lord of glory, he is the one who created all things and sustains all things, and that even he is the one who laid down his life for his sheep. We thank you that he is the good shepherd, that that is the kind of shepherd that you have given us, that you have not withheld even your own son from us, but sent him for our salvation. We pray that if anybody here this morning doesn't yet know you, does not have eternal life in his name, that you might open their eyes even this morning by the power of your gospel and the work of your spirit. Grant them repentance and faith in Christ that they may never have to think again about whether or not they know him, but they could know that they have life in his name and have the peace and assurance of that. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for who he is. Thank you that he is even now reigning at your right hand with authority over all things. And he's with us always, even to the end of the age. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.